Years ago, there was a guy that uh, was just just a bachelor, a young bachelor, never been married, and he was a farmer. He lived all by himself out in the literally the middle of nowhere. And uh, since it was just him, he didn't need a lot. About all he had was a garden, and that's all he needed. He had lots of animals and stuff, but he wasn't married. And the reason he wasn't married, because there was no one besides him. His name was Adam. And God looked out and he said, he saw that all the animals had a male and a female. They had a mate. And God said, it is not good that man shall be, should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. If you study the Bible, you won't find the word a helpmate anywhere in the Bible. What the old King James says is, I will make him a help meet for him. In other words, suitable or appropriate. God didn't give man a, a dog to be a partner or a monkey. God gave him a helper that was comparable to him. The woman, just like the man, was made in God's image. And so for the last 6,000 peop- years, people have been getting married. And you would think by now, with as long as we've had marriage around and people have been married, and our parents were married and our grandparents were married, you would think that we would have gotten it right by now. But you look around and you see so many divorces. I hear different statistics and there's different ways of looking at statistics. But I think the divorce rate is about 50%. And you'd think if we'd been, marriage had been around so long, we would know how to do it by now. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning is marriage. And I think, well, I don't claim to be an expert on it. I think maybe there are three reasons that the divorce rate is so high. I think a lot of us, just like a lot of things in life, enter into something thinking we know all about it, but not really understanding it. And I think with marriage, there's three things that we that we misunderstand, and we think we understand it, but going into it, we don't really understand it. The first thing I think that gives us problems with marriage is that we are supposed to be one. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus, tempting him. And they asked him, said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's talking about when God created them both in the garden. This is God's. Jesus is quoting God. So then they are no longer one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In just almost every Christian wedding, this verse is read. They too shall be one flesh. What does he mean when he says, they too shall be one flesh? Well, he means literally that. We understand that from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Paul asks the question. He says, Know ye not that he that is joined to harlot is one flesh? So it's the act of intimacy that's one flesh. But there are other ways that we are one. You know, when I was younger, I, under, I learned that there were some religions that believed that there was a God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. But other religions believe that these were just three names for the same person. Because Jesus said stuff like, the Father and I are one. And what does that mean? Does that mean that they're one? That there's just one of them with three names or that there's three of them? Well, just like you and your wife or just like your parents, 
there's two that make up one, or in God's case, there's three that make up one. They're one in different ways. They're one, first off, physically like we've talked about, but then a husband and wife are one in purpose. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about husbands and wives, and you can uh, put a bookmark here because we'll refer to this verse several times. In the first part of chapter 3, Peter talks about how the wives are supposed to conduct themselves. And then in verse 7, talking about the husband, Peter says, Likewise, you husbands dwell with them, the wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not answered. So we're one when it comes to being heirs together of the grace of life. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. One of the reasons we get married is because we want to have a good life. That's one of our goals. It's the husband's goal. It's the wife's goal. We're united in that. And then Peter also mentions here spiritual things. He says that your prayers be not hindered. We have the same spiritual goals. We both want to get to heaven. We want our children to get to heaven. And we want our grandkids to get to heaven. So we're united in our goals. And then like I said, uh, uh, talking about a good life, we're united in that aspect too. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, in verse 9, Solomon says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And the threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here Solomon mentions things about life being easier, life being better. We're comforted. He talks about us staying warm together. Uh, It says if one falls, the other will lift him up so we get a, a spiritual strength. And those are the, the ways that a husband and wife are, are united, the way that we're one. One way that we're united is in raising kids. We want to raise godly children that will not end up in jail, not end up dead from drugs, but they too will grow up to have good marriages and have good children and enjoy life. And so from the time our kids are little, we warn them, say, don't play in the street, don't smoke, don't take drugs. Don't drive too fast. Wear your seatbelt. Because we want them to have a good life too. But that's where a lot of problems come in is when we have kids. If we're husband and wife or one, then when it comes to raising kids, we should be unified in front of them. We should have one set of rules. There shouldn't be one set of rules when mom's there And then when dad comes home, there's a different set of rules. The husband and wife should be united. We shouldn't argue in front of the kids. We should do that away from the kids, make up our mind what the rules are going to be, and then enforce them. And the kids should be one parent. I think I've told this story. I'm going to tell it one more time, and I'll try not to ever tell it again. Because I think a lot of you have heard it. When Laura was little... She came in, I was like back in the bedroom, I think, and she said, Dad, can I have a cookie? And this is about 5 o'clock in the evening. Angie was in the kitchen getting supper ready. And I said, no, supper's almost ready. You can't have a cookie. 
Well, Laura went into the kitchen not knowing that I could still hear her. And she asked Angie, or actually it was the other way around. She asked Angie first, not knowing that I'd heard, she came in and asked me. She said, Dad, can I have a cookie? And I said, what did Mom say? Mom said, no. I said, well, then you can't have a, or what Mom said is what I say. And it hit me then that that's what it means when Jesus and God, or when Jesus said that he and God were one. Jesus says in John, he says, I didn't, don't speak my own word. What I heard from the Father, that's what I speak. And so it's the same with the husband and wife. Whatever the dad says to children should be the same as what the mom says to children. You should work that out ahead of time. I don't know if they would like me telling this, but Jay and Gay Henderson, when they were raising their three kids, there was no place in the house they could go to argue where the kids wouldn't hear. So they would go sit in the car in the garage (laughs) to have their arguments. But they didn't argue in front of the kids. In front of the kids... They were one. So we don't argue in front of the kids, and we should have one set of rules. It brings a lot of problems between a husband and a wife when they can't agree on how to raise the kids. And sometimes that's going to mean compromise. Sometimes the mom says, I just will not go for this. And that may be the time the dad says, okay, in his own mind, don't say this out loud. I think that's a dumb rule, but it's something I can live with. Because there's going to be other times when the dad's going to feel the same way. He's going to say, I just cannot tolerate this in in other people. And the mom may think, well, that's not the way I grew up, but I can live with that. And then the dad should enforce the mom's rules, and the mom should enforce the dad's rules because they have one set of rules, their rules. And so two people become one in raising kids. Problems arise in a marriage also when we get in a disagreement and we look at it as a win-lose situation. Most of life is a win-lose situation. I'm going to go buy a new car or a new pickup. And one or two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to be a good bargainer and I'm going to walk away with a good deal or he's going to be a better salesman than I am bargainer and I'm going to pay through the nose. Either I'm going to save a lot of money or that salesman is going to make a good commission. It's a win-lose situation. I'm going to go in and ask my boss for a raise. Either I'm going to get it or I'm not going to get it. Marriage should not be looked at as a win-lose situation. We're now one. We want what's best for all of us, for both of us. We want to walk away with a win-win situation. Now, we may not always get everything we want, but what we want is what's best for us. There's two... I guess there's a lot of rules for getting along with people, but two rules are found in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And then right after that, he says, Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. So that's two things we need to do to get along with each other, but especially in a marriage. One, we need to esteem the other better than ourselves, and we need to look out for their interests also. When we start thinking that we're the smarter of the two, or that we're the better of the two, or the more righteous, or or whatever, the better parent, whatever, and we start looking down on our husband or wife, 
we're going to have serious problems. And if you've done that, you know that's true. And if we're always looking out for our own interests, if I'm the one that always decides what movie we'll see, if I always decide where we'll go out to eat, if I'm the one that decides what kind of car we're going to buy without taking into consideration my wife, we're going to have some big problems. Esteem others better than yourself. Look out for their needs also. This is important in all of life, but especially in marriage. They too shall be one. The second problem comes in, I think for, it causes a lot of divorces, is that we kind of grasp this idea of being two, I mean being one, but we forget that we're separate. Even as God and Jesus, Jesus said we are one, God is called the Father and Jesus is called the Son and they have different roles. But they were still one. Sometimes after we get married, we remember that one part and we expect the other person to be like us. And that's, again, where problems can come in. But God didn't create us the same. That's been one of the big problems with women's lib that started back in the 60s is that they tried to say that men and, equal, men and women were not only equal, but the same. Now, in God's eyes, we are equal. In Galatians chapter 3, I believe, and other places, it talks about before God, there's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. We're all equal in God's eyes. But we have different roles. We have different roles on this earth, and we have different roles in marriage. And like I said, we have problems when we start trying to make the other like us. We have different roles. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, Acts 7, other places we learn that the men, according to God's plan, are supposed to be leaders in the church. When Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, he mentions that women were supposed to be keepers at home. Now, while the man's supposed to be involved in home, and uh, it's the woman's job primarily. We all know that the woman was made to, to have children and then to nurse children and to nurture them. And that's just the way God made us. So we have different roles. We're different physically. We read First Peter chapter 3 where it talks about, get, about giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. What does that mean, weaker vessel? Does that mean that she's weaker emotionally and weaker mentally? And, you know, we hear dumb blonde jokes. Is that what weaker means? No. What's a vessel? A vessel is something that you put something in. Our bodies contain our souls. The woman's soul is not weaker. She's not dumber. Her body is weaker. And that's why you don't see women playing in NFL football. They just can't compete. In any sports, you've got men's basketball and women's basketball, men's golf, women's golf, uh, baseball and softball. And the women's libbers are just blind to reality. We all know and understand that. But we've got to remember that because Peter reminded us to give honor to our wives as to the weaker vessel, to not expect the same things. So men, you can tell just by looking at most of us that men are bigger, men are stronger, Men are more protective. Men go out and, and do the hunting and, and provide and bring home the bacon or bring home the food for, for the family. The wife stays at home and nurtures the children. Whenever there's a danger, a man picks up a weapon, a club, or a gun and goes out to meet the danger and protect his family. The wife takes the children and either hugs them or gets them back behind her because the wife is their nurturer, because she wasn't made to 
to fight battles. God never sent the women out to fight battles in the Old Testament. Men are more aggressive. Women tend to be submissive. The man's the provider. The woman's in charge of child rearing. And so we're different. And that's why opposites attract. If you look at your marriage or the marriage of people around you, uh, you'll probably find, for example, that one man or that one person is very organized and the other is scatterbrained. Or you'll find that one is very quiet and solemn and doesn't say much and the other is really outgoing in the life of the party. Opposites attract. When we say opposites attract, we don't mean that a Jew marries a Catholic. We should have the same... Uh, beliefs and the same goals in life. But then we're going to be attracted to someone that's opposite from us. Oh, I just love him. He's so organized and he's always on time. I just love that about him. So, oh, I just love her. She's the life of the party. She always makes jokes. She just makes life so much better. And that's what attracts us to each other. But then, once we get married, reality sets in and... uh, the things that attracted us to her start irritating us. Oh, she's a life of the party. She's so happy and carefree. And oh, she's just so much fun to be around. But then you get married and you find out she never puts stuff up. She doesn't keep the house clean because she's always out doing stuff and being with people. And so the thing that attracted you to her starts irritating you. Oh, I love me so organized, he's good with money, he, oh, he just brings so much order into my life, I just love that. And then after marriage, he's such a control freak, he won't give me any money, the budget is so tight, he's always telling me how to do things. We've got to remember that what attracted us to her, or to him, will probably end up later uh, irritating us. And we shouldn't try to change that, that's what attracted us to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I don't think I'll read the whole thing. Paul compares the body or the church to a body. It says in verse 18, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And like I said, comparing the church to human body. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. And so he goes on to explain the differences, but how we all fit together and work together. And I see marriage like this. Where I've got weaknesses, Angie's got strengths. And where Angie's got weaknesses, I've got strengths. But it all fits in, like it says in Ecclesiastes, where it says two are better than one. It fills in the gaps. And the two of us together are stronger than each of us if we were separate. We kind of fit together like this. And that's what Paul says about the church. He says there's different members that have different roles. And we don't need to say one to another, well, you're not as important as I am. Well, that's if that's true in the church, it's true in marriage also. We shouldn't uh, let a root of bitterness spring up and then, and then we start uh, resenting our wife or our husband for their shortcomings. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, Paul says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. 
So rather than resenting your wife's shortcomings, the fact that she's scatterbrained or the fact that she's a neat freak or whatever, we need to learn to appreciate those things. And, and the fact that we're the opposite of that and she kind of takes care of that is a good thing. It's a positive. That's why it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that a woman should be alone. Um, James chapter 4 in verse 11. Once bitterness sets in, then lots of problems happen in a marriage. James 4 and verse 11 says, Do not speak evil one of another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer, but a judge. We shouldn't get to a point in our marriage where we're judging our spouse for their shortcomings. We need to remember that we're different, and that's why we were attracted to each other, because opposites attract. In our marriage, there's been some, a lot of good times and a lot of bad times. But I can tell you when things change dramatically, and this was probably 15 or 20 years into our marriage, it took a long time for me to learn this, is that I cannot change Angie. Now, that sounds like a simple thing. You thought, well, duh. I mean, you should have known that from the beginning. But I finally learned I have a hard enough time just taking care of myself. And controlling myself and overcoming my habits. And I can sure never change Angie. I can't change you. I can't change anybody. I can barely take care of myself. But we get to a point in the marriage sometimes where we start seeing the shortcomings. And we start trying to change our spouse and help them to be as good as we are. And again, that brings in problems. There's a guy that wrote a book called uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And it's all small stuff. And one of the things he talks about in this book is he says, don't try to weatherproof your marriage. What does that mean? Well, if you weatherproof a house, you go in and you make sure all the doors are shut well and that there's no air coming in, not around the top, the bottom, the sides. You put in uh, double-pane windows and you insulate around the windows, both inside and outside. You insulate the attic and you just go through trying to fix all the air leaks so your house will be warm and toasty in the wintertime. It will be just perfect. Whenever we start trying to fix our spouse and fix all their little problems, all their little shortcomings and always correcting them with women, it's called nagging, but men can do that too. You're not going to have a warm, cozy marriage. You're going to have a very cold, bitter marriage. Don't try to weatherproof our marriage and weatherproof our spouse. I saw a deal on Facebook the other day. It says, the worst thing you can do for someone who is trying to change is to keep bringing up their past. Again, we should appreciate our spouse for who they are. We should appreciate their strengths and overlook their weaknesses. The best thing we can do for anybody, but especially for our wife or our husband, is like, uh, well, let's go there. First Peter chapter 3 again. <clears throat> Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And pay attention to this. That even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear or respect, Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of the ranging of the hair, of wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. It says, even if your woman or your husband won't listen to God's word and be converted, you create an atmosphere in your home and around your husband, around your children, for them to be receptive and to admire you and to look up to you and then in return or in turn look up to God and then later obey his word. The best thing we can do for someone that needs to change is to create a loving environment where they are encouraged to change. Our marriages will be a lot better if we will quit trying to weatherproof them. So we're one, but we're still separate, and we bring strengths to each other to make that's the word synergy is where two plus or one plus one equals three. Uh, two together can do more than if they work separately. It's called synergy, and that's why marriage works, separate. One but separate. The third problem is that people do not understand the word forever. Going back to Matthew chapter 19 where the Pharisees came to Jesus tempting them, Jesus said, Therefore, what God has put together, let not man put asunder. Let not man destroy. In uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul says in verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, so she has married another man. Marriage is from here till the day we die. And that too is usually in, in marriage vows. So why are there so many divorces? Why are there divorces in the church? Well, I think one reason you take a 18 and 19-year-old, or it can happen in your 30s, but... Take an 18, 19, 20-year-old that's fresh out of high school, maybe doesn't even have a college degree yet, never accomplished a lot in life yet. And they have this ceremony and they commit forever. What else in life is forever? Have any of us ever bought a car planning on this being the only car we would ever buy? My dad used to trade cars every year. What about uh, jobs? I think it's 80% of people are in a job that they didn't go to college for. We change jobs all the time. Is there anything else in life that we commit to forever? We get a job, we get on a baseball team, we get in a sporting event, we take up a hobby, and a few years later we're not doing that. And yet this 18-year-old, these two 18-year-olds, are supposed to understand forever. But that's what marriage is. But then reality sets in. They say love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. You've seen those business charts, uh, usually in cartoons or uh, maybe on TV where it's got a big uh, a chalkboard or uh, a dry erase board, and it's got that jagged line showing how business is. you got the, the bad times and the good times, and hopefully that line is going up. Well, what we expect when we get married is that things are starting off good, and they're just going to get better. The reality of it is, things start off good, 
And then usually, unless the people dated for several years or something, things start off good and get better, and then the crash sets in. <laughs> Reality sets in. Like I said, opposites attract. At first, it's the good points of her that attract you, but then later, man, she leaves so much clutter around the house. She never picks up after herself. Man, he, he's so bad with money. Reality sets in. And then, that's where a lot of divorces happen, right down here at this low spot. I think in the stock market, I think we've had what's called Black Mondays, where things got really bad. That's where a lot of divorces happen, because they think, oh, this isn't what I expected. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be this bad. But if you stick in there, hang in there, things start coming up. Then you have another low spot, and then things come up. And you have another low spot, then you have a high spot. And if you'll hang in there, just like in a business, things will get better and better, and you have fewer low spots, and the high spots will be longer, and you'll get higher and higher in your marriage. Marriage is not a 50-50 deal. Divorce is 50-50. Marriage is 100-100%. When you're taking off in an airplane, they pull that throttle all the way back and they give it everything they've got until that plane is at cruising altitude. Then they can ease back on that throttle a little bit and don't have to work so hard. There's a verse in the Old Testament I didn't think to write it down. Angie says it's her favorite verse. And it says, When a man takes a wife... He shall not be charged with any business for a year and shall not go to war, but stay home with his wife. <laughs> that first year, that first two, three, four, five, ten years, whatever, we need to put everything we've got into it and learn to get along and not be disappointed when hard times come. Yeah, you know, I said that people have never committed to anything forever. Someone's telling me recently that um, one of my pool customers, they bought it, or I had a pool customer and he sold the house. And I continue to do the pool for the new customers. The day after they signed the papers, a $450 motor went out. And then two months later, another motor went out. It was another $450. And then they had some other miscellaneous things. Now, they're paying me to take care of the pool every month. They got that cost already. And then all these $1 and $200 parts keep breaking and then last month I sent them a bill for $800 because lightning struck and they're sw- they're, uh, bro- burned up some boards in their heater. And someone says, well, you know, that's what a lot of people do. They'll buy a house and then when it gets old enough uh, where things are going to start breaking and uh, uh, needs repainting and stuff, they'll sell that house and buy a new house. Well, that's okay with houses. Unless, of course, it's your dream house. A little bit of maintenance few repairs, a new paint job, and that dream house of yours will be as good as new. But people get into marriage and start things that start they start seeing the shortcomings of their wife or their husband and then they go, Man, I don't know about this. And that's when divorces happen. I've got a pickup that's got four hundred and four thousand miles on it. And my mechanic, every time I take it in to get something repaired, he goes, how many miles that thing got on it now? And I'll tell him. He just laughs and shakes his head. But I haven't had a pickup payment. Well, I bought it used. I probably got it in 99 maybe. I've not had a pickup payment in the last 11 years. You multiply 11 years times 12 months times three, four, five, six hundred $600 a month. 
I saved a lot of money. And something breaks. He goes, you don't want to put any more money in that pickup. I say, look, for $600, I can get a new seat. and My pickup will be just about as good as new. $600 for some of you, that's one month's payment. And you'll have a payment after that and after that and after that. I'm done. I put out $600. I still don't have any payments. He said, what's that have to do with the marriage? Well, once you get into a marriage and you start having the problems, seeing the shortcomings, you can do one of two things. You can divorce and get a new husband or new wife, but you know what? Eventually that husband and new, new pickup, and that new husband, that new wife is going to start having problems too. And now you got payments in addition to problems that you've got to fix. Why didn't you stay with the one you had? You're going to pay dearly if you just dump that pickup after 12 months. If you dump your spouse after 12 months, you're going to do it all again. You're going to marry someone else, and you're going to find out that they're not perfect. Angie was telling me about someone that, um, I don't remember how she knew or heard about this woman. She got pregnant, and she and her boyfriend got married when she was 18. And now she's older, and she's been married four times now, and she's divorced again. And she says, I wished I had never divorced my first husband. He was the best thing that ever happened to me. And Angie says, I hear that so many times. People looking back and realizing that it wasn't as bad as what they thought. If they just stuck it out through the rough times and gotten up to the good times. Put in a couple hundred dollars, fix it. You know, my wife, bless her heart, every year since we've lived out in the country, every year wants nice flower beds and she wants a nice garden. And every year, just about, she'll get out there when that first warm day comes and put mulch and plant some flowers. But then summer comes and it gets hot. And then we're busy with other things. We've got a vacation and it's hot. And she doesn't want to get out and work. And there's no one to get out there and help her work. And the weeds get too big. And halfway through the year, there's no garden and the flower beds are overgrown. That's the way marriage is. At first, we're really excited. That first warm, fuzzy feeling sets in. and We get excited. We get married. We rush off and get married. And then reality sets in. Then it gets too hot. Then we don't want to water the garden. Um, we don't want to get out there and work by ourselves. Well, are we going to take care of the garden and reap the fruits? Or are we just going to toss it all in? We've got to hang in there till the end. Marriage is a forever thing. So, the three things we need to understand about marriage is that we're one now. We're one, but we're separate. We each bring strengths into marriage, and we need to appreciate that. The third thing, this is a forever deal. We don't toss in the towel the first time we get hit on the jaw. Like in a, in a boxing match. We go back and we go back until we win. So I've got a question for you. Of all the dummies books that have ever been written, Windows for Dummies, Kittens for Dummies, Singing for Dummies, Computers for Dummies, do you know what the number one best-selling dummies book there ever was? I'm proud to say this. Banjo for Dummies. Outsold all the computers for dummies books. And at the end of every dummies book, they have top ten lists. And so I've made top ten lists with the help of my friends on Facebook. 
I've got two top ten lists. Things to never do in marriage. Things to always do in marriage. Hopefully every day. So we'll just go through these quickly. If you've got a pencil and paper, you might want to write these down. We'll start with, we'll start with the negative and go to the positive. Ten things you never do in, in uh, marriage. Never insult in public, in private, or behind their back your spouse. A bunch of us guys get together and you start talking bad about your wife. We don't think your wife's an idiot. We think you are. Never insult your spouse. And that's the same way with women. Never insult your spouse. Never lie. Once you lose that trust, it's going to take a long, long, long time to get it back. Never be abusive. Never be abusive either physically or emotionally. Don't make your spouse feel dumb. Don't be condescending to them. Don't be disrespectful to them. No name calling. And don't hit below the belt. Don't say something just to hurt them. Don't bring up old mistakes. You wouldn't want them doing that to you. Well, that's number four. Never bring up past mistakes. Number five. Never withhold physical intimacy. See 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7 and verse 5. Never be rude. Peter said in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 8, be courteous. If I'm supposed to be courteous to you, if we're courteous to our boss, if we're courteous to the man on the street, we should be courteous to our spouse. Never put a stumbling block in their way. I was reading a book the other day. This couple had been married a couple of years, and her birthday was coming up. And as she got these birthday cards in, her ma- in the mail, she would hide them from her husband to see if he would remember on his own. Well, he forgot And she reminded him that night, did that make their marriage stronger or weaker? He should have remembered. She shouldn't have put a stumbling block in his way. We already talked about don't try to weatherproof your marriage. Don't try to make it perfect. Never go to bed angry. At least, if you can't fix the problem that night, at least come to compromise. End your argument with an I love you. And from Karen Springer, don't take for granted that they'll always be there. For those of you that don't know Karen Springer, she lost her husband a couple years ago to cancer. Now the top ten to-do list. Number one is put God first. If you put God first, your husband or your wife will be very happy with you. Compliment them all the time. Be interested in other person's interests. If you make fun of your husband's hobbies... Or you make fun of the things that your wife likes, you're making fun of your husband or wife. Don't do that. Be interested in what they're interested in. Just like when you come home and tell them about your day, you want them to be interested in you. Go to bed together. Number five, be united in front of the kids. Hold hands, touch, hug. I remember one of Bud Jones' lessons, he talks about a soft touch. It means a lot. Go on a date every week. Talk positive about your spouse to other people and to your children. Have you ever badmouthed someone and then five seconds later they walk in the room? Man, you just feel so... They didn't hear you, but you feel so uncomfortable knowing that you said that and here you are around them. 
uh, talk positive about your husband or wife. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, we already talked about be courteous. And number 10, say I love you. There's a man in the church um, that never tells his wife, I love you. And his explanation is, he said, we didn't grow up in an, in an affectionate family. Well, you know what? That's a poor excuse. Most of us did grow up in an affectionate family. And we should want a, a warm, loving family. Tell your wife, tell your husband, I love you. It means a lot to hear those words. You know, I talked about banjo for dummies. I've learned from being a musician or trying to be a musician the last few years. If you want to learn to play the banjo, you're going to have to... This, I'm closing now, so if you're getting bored. If you're going to learn to play the banjo and get good at it... There's a lot of people that buy guitars and banjos and clarinets that just end up in the closet and they can't play. If you want to get good at something, an instrument, you're going to have to practice every day. And you're going to have to work on it. Not just pick it up and play it. You're going to have to practice, work at it. You're going to have to get instruction or uh, lessons. You can either pay someone, go every week and get lessons. You can read books. You can watch YouTube videos. When you're just sitting around playing, you go, how did you do that? I've never seen anyone do that. And someone can explain it to you. Somehow or another, you're going to have to get lessons to get good at playing the banjo or guitar. You're going to have to be around other people that are good banjo players so it will motivate you, so it will inspire you, so that you can see that it can be done. It's not impossible. He did it, and he's only been playing for three years. You got to be around other good people. You got to read books and, and videos and stuff like that. And it's the same with your marriage. If you just enter into it, expect it to be easy breezy, you're going to hit bottom. You got to work at it. You got to be around others. You got to get advice. You got to study. You got to put everything you've got into it. And then one day you'll be a good banjo player. Eventually your marriage will be good. It always seems impossible until it's done. Winston Churchill was invited to give a commencement speech to college. And the story goes, he got up and he looked out at the audience. And he kind of, I think he had a gruff voice. He, said, he was English. He said, he said, never give up. And he just looked at the people. And he said, never give up. And he said a third time, he said, never Give up. And he walked off the stage. So my advice to you this morning with your marriage is never give up. Let's sing the song of invitation.